Welcome back to the BME grad podcast. I'm Allie, and we have just one more episode until the close of season one. So look out for an exciting announcement in the last episode of season one, uh, episode number 30, where I'll talk about what's coming up for season two. Moving on to today, my guest is Jordan Joyner. Jordan connected with me a while back after encountering the podcast and told me a bit about her career journey so far. And I've been hoping to get her on as a guest. So here she is. Jordan got her bachelor's in chemical and biological engineering at the University of Alabama in 2015. She then worked for Evonik for three years as a process engineer before deciding to go back to university. And she's currently a fourth year pharmaceutical sciences PhD candidate in the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. Jordan made a big decision to switch from her corporate job to go back to get her PhD. And in this interview, she talks about her journey and all the factors that came together that influenced her decision to pursue it. I think anyone interested in pharma or biotech, um, curious about a PhD in those spaces, or maybe curious about what it's like to go back to school after being in the industry a while, will find Jordan's description of her experience really insightful. So please enjoy Jordan Joyner. Hey, Jordan, thanks for joining the BME Grad Podcast. How are you? Hey, Allie, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. This is a fabulous Thursday night. Um, thank you for doing this after your long day, pursuing your PhD. Um, just to give a quick background to folks listening. So you studied chemical and biological engineering at the University of Alabama, Roll Tide, then ventured out into industry to start off as a process engineer at Evonik, where you stayed for three years. And um, you're now back at university, three and a half years into pursuing your PhD in pharmaceutical sciences at the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy. And I really want to get into your PhD work and like how you transitioned back into university and why. Um, so let's start like at Evonik. What, what does Evonik do? Why did you choose it? And what were you doing there for, for three years as a process engineer? Yeah, wow, you really did your background I, research. I've been studying you. <laughs> yeah, good thing my LinkedIn page is up to date. It's very um, up to date. Nice job. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, I am sort of job searching. So you probably got the polished version of how it was a year ago. Employers, if you're listening, you have a yeah. fabulous candidate ahead. Yes, please tune in to the BME podcast. Yeah, please listen. Um, so yeah, Evonik is a specialty chemical company that's actually based in Germany. And so I worked at a site in Birmingham, Alabama, which was an acquisition. Um, and so it's a huge chemical company. And so I worked um, in the nutrition and care division, which kind of houses uh, the pharmaceutical side of things. And so we were specifically a contract development and manufacturing organization uh, for pharmaceutical development. Um, so that basically just means that we worked with pharmaceutical companies, um, both small and large, to develop their new or existing drug technologies mm -hmm. um, to be able to make enough material to support either animal studies or clinical trials. Um, so my group specialty was developing microparticles, uh, which contained small molecule drugs. So that's as opposed to a large molecule, which is something like a protein or an antibody. So, um, so then what's a small molecule? 
Yeah, so that can be either a synthetic or naturally occurring molecule that's just below a certain size. Uh, okay. Size cutoff. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Um, and so, yeah, based on the size, it can get in, you know, different areas of the body. So the kind of the process to development is a little bit different for small molecules than something different. That makes sense. Yep. And so we were specializing in sterile injectable formulations. So one kind of example of that is Lupron Depot, which is used as a treatment for prostate cancer um, and endometriosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so specifically as a process engineer, um, we basically took the formulation that was developed by the scientists. And so my job was to design and build a process that would scale up the formulation um, and also ensuring that the entire batch would meet the target product profile as specified by the client. So kind of depending on the day, I'd either be you know, doing some calculations to determine what equipment I might need, uh, building a new process in the lab, um, making a batch of microparticles, um, analyzing data, writing reports, um, and also training interns and co-ops and manufacturing team to make a batch of particles. So I worked either in a pilot plant or in a clean room. Um, So I got a lot of kind of exposure to the drug development process through that experience. And so what does it look like when you're building out this kind of process? What kind of equipment is being used? Uh, What does this like look like? Um, Yeah, so, wow, I really am gonna have to use my imagination on this one. I'm using my imagination (laughs) because I have no idea. Yeah, so. so it's some pretty huge tanks. Okay. So for perspective, I would have to get up on a ladder and like climb up on some like really huge tanks for some of our bigger processes. And then because it was a sterile formulation process, everything kind of has to be enclosed in some sort of like stainless steel. So there's a lot of kind of, you know, piping a bunch of tanks just kind of together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, nothing really like exciting that I have the chance to really explain. Yeah, no, this is cool. And then so would you kind of like program how things move through that? Or would you kind of coordinate how things are going to move through that and other people would program it? Like kind of how did that process get get built up? I'm really speaking in arbitrary terms because I have no idea. So uh, that's my best. Yeah, so (laughs) people that were more like, Um, mechanical engineers or electrical engineers might be better suited for, you know, like the controls side of things, you know, automating the process. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas personally, as a chemical engineer, I was just making sure that the sheer volumes of liquid would actually fit in the tanks that we were using and kind of making sure that the, so basically you have to use like a rotor stator, just something that has like sharp edges that turn really fast to Mm -hmm. make particles that are really small. And so I also had to, you know, do some modeling to kind of figure out, you know, what parameters we might use to achieve the same particle size that you would use as if you're making particles in like a beaker. That's super cool. Did you like it? Yeah, I really liked it. And actually through that process, I decided that I really liked the formulation science side of things Mm. over the actual engineering side of things. And so kind of towards the end of my time at Evonik, I had more of a chance to work on formulation development. And so that kind of 
steered me towards, you know, switching from an engineer to more of a scientist role and, you know, looking for PhD programs. Okay. So, so what came first? Did you start doing the formulation work and then say, Hmm, like maybe a PhD would be interesting or did, did the interest for the PhD come first? Uh, let me add in a third variable. Was there some role you're trying to get to in the future that you thought you might need a PhD for, I guess, like what happened there and, and why, uh, did you eventually transition out? Yeah, so there were a ton of different factors that kind of went into the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. So I'll just start off by saying that when I was an undergrad, I never pictured myself getting a PhD. Um, I didn't grow up knowing anyone that, you know, had a PhD. I didn't really have any friends that went to grad school. So really, it seems like kind of a mysterious process. So it wasn't really until having mentors that had PhDs that kind of saw I guess, a quality in me that I might do well in a PhD program that kind of encouraged me to look into what that might look like and mm -hmm. told me a little bit more about, you know, kind of the process and what programs to look into um, and things like that. So yeah, it was kind of like I was doing engineering in the lab and then I got put on a project that was kind of earlier stage. So I was a little bit more intimately involved with the formulation development. And I was like, hey, you know, I really like this. So kind of in the back of my mind, I was like, hey, I like this. So I might want to learn more about it. And then secondly, we had gotten a client project that was a little bit out of our wheelhouse. So it was actually a biologic. So it was a protein that we needed to deliver. And it was extremely challenging for our team because no one really had the expertise to really move the project forward. And so based on that, I kind of was starting to get a little bit interested in biologics because I was just really curious about how it was different from small molecules. And, you know, kind of the drug development process has been based upon small molecules. That's been kind of the historical process for process development and biologics is kind of like the new frontier. So trying to develop a protein, antibody, a cell therapy, a gene therapy, that's kind of like on the cutting edge of science. And mm -hmm. so I knew that if I was going to go back to graduate school, that I would want to learn more about that. Um, as opposed to, you know, no one's ever going to be able to take away the experience that I had in small molecules, but it just made me really interested in learning more about, you know, kind of cutting edge science techniques. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I'll also say at my company, there was some restructuring going on. Um, and so it was also kind of like a good time to get out. Yeah. If that makes sense. So, yeah. you know, there were a ton of factors kind of going into the decision-making process for me. And I felt like also at my company, I don't know if it was specifically for my company or if all biotech companies are like this, but I felt immediately that there was a ceiling of a position that I could not get past, or it would take me five to 10 years to get to the senior scientist level. Whereas, you know, people with PhDs were able to move up really fast. They could, they were the only ones that could get to the director level. And then they were the ones that were in the end able to make all of the decisions. So if there was ever a scientific decision that 
I needed to make in the lab during a batch, I would have to call up to my boss and say, hey, what do you think about this decision rather than just being able to make the decision? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to be able to do that for myself because I felt you know, confident in my decision-making abilities. And you know, I also wanted to be able to kind of have my own lab, have my own group, be a mentor, which you also couldn't do in my group without having a PhD. So a lot of different factors, pretty long answer, but. No, I mean, a lot of things got to go into a decision that big. So it makes total sense. Knowing what you know about other like pharma biotech companies, do you think that that's kind of a common thing to get to those senior scientist levels? You need a PhD and maybe a lot of people face this, this roadblock. Yeah, I think so. Um, Of course that's different with every company, Mm -hmm. but generally when you come in for a scientist role specifically if you just have a bachelor's you'll be an associate scientist and then you know it might take you 10 years or longer to get to a senior scientist role whereas if you're coming directly out of your PhD you're automatically probably going to get that scientist or senior scientist role and why do you think that is that's a great no, question. Like a big question, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's definitely not an intelligence thing. I truly mm-hmm. believe that anyone can get a PhD if they're willing to put in the effort, put in the time and kind of know what you're getting into. It's just the process of getting a PhD, even though it's in a really small, narrow scientific field you're really kind of thrown out into the deep end and become an independent researcher of your own. And so those skills can kind of be applied to any position. And so it's really those on the fly decision-making skills. It's the ability to read scientific papers and keeping up with, you know, cutting edge science, you know, really quickly being able to adapt that really gives a PhD an advantage over someone with just a bachelor's. Um, Mm -hmm. Do I think that a seasoned person with a bachelor's degree can do any job that a PhD can? Probably. Yeah. (laughs) A high level position that just gives that extra layer of credibility. Totally. Yeah. Well, and and what you said about what a PhD could give you and develop in you, um, it makes sense why they, they might set that as a quicker pathway to those senior roles. And then so my other thing is you said some of your mentors at Ivonic saw that you might like that path and saw something in you. What do you think they saw in you? I think it was my curiosity to mm-hmm. kind of dig into the details of, you know, why something might be going right, why something might be going wrong and kind of taking that next step in, okay, let me try this and this assay to figure out what might have happened. And so whenever you are in a PhD, you're really kind of on your own in a sense, you have to kind of be your own independent thinker. And so I think that's probably a little bit of, you know, why they might have encouraged me to get a PhD. And I think also because I realized that I wanted to switch into science. One other thing that I forgot to mention in one of your previous questions about whether a PhD is necessary, I also learned this in a conversation from someone during my internship because 
I felt really overwhelmed recently about what types of positions to apply for after PhD, because I feel like different companies have different titles for the same role. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you had that experience whenever you were applying for jobs. So like, for example, a principal scientist at Merck might be like a senior scientist at J&J or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. I also learned that in earlier stages of the drug discovery or drug development process. So like drug discovery companies really want you to have postdoc experience in a really specific area because you're really close to the basic science. So that was also something that I didn't know. Um, I definitely see myself going more into process development and I don't see myself getting a postdoc. Um, but that was just something interesting that I learned pretty recently that I thought was kind of surprising. Yeah. But now that I hear it, it kind of makes a little bit of sense, right? Like you can almost see why that might be valuable up in the upstream development process. What do you think? Like, does that line up for you? Like, yeah, I think so. I haven't really been, you know, I've been an engineer or formulation development, so I haven't really worked intimately on the discovery side of things, but I do think that companies are probably poaching certain labs that are really known in this certain field on like the basic side of things because they want to be able to have a really good starting point, you know, because that discovery is, you know, if you don't have a good molecule to deliver, then you don't really have anything. Absolutely. That's a good ad. Okay. So let's dive in a little bit to your PhD work and, and how did you, this actually the process of this would be interesting. So do you choose who you're doing your PhD with? Do they choose you? Do you apply? Like, I guess why UNC, um, why Dayton's lab? And then, and then what are you doing there? That would be cool to know. I kind of knew my end goal that I would come back to industry eventually after getting a PhD. And I knew that I wanted to stay in pharma. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I definitely felt like pharmaceutical sciences was the degree that I wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, But pharmaceutical sciences is a little bit more niche than just like chemistry or biology. And so there aren't as many programs that have that specific PhD that you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, um, this probably wasn't the best way to go about it now in hindsight, but I was trying to look up the best pharmacy schools in the nation, because clearly if you have a good PharmD program, then you probably have a good pharmaceutical sciences PhD program, just because there wasn't as much information that makes sense out to me. there about it. Yeah. Um, and so UNC is, you know, the number one pharmacy school in the nation. And so that was definitely one of my top choices. Um, I applied to four other schools, but in the end, I definitely felt like UNC was the best fit. And I still definitely feel that way. And so I joined a division. So there's four different divisions at UNC kind of across the drug development process. And so the first division is kind of like the drug discovery. And then the second is the one that I'm in, which is drug delivery. So we basically will take the molecule, take whatever technology and try to figure out how to get it um, to the right place in the body 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of like the preclinical step of the drug development process. And then there's two other divisions that are uh, more translational, more kind of post-market um, study. So a lot of people actually come in with their PharmDs and then get their PhD after that that are in those two divisions, uh, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't really 100% set on one very specific research area. I just knew that I wanted to do something that was cutting edge in the field and something that was really interesting. I wasn't super passionate about one specific area going in, and mm-hmm. but I did feel like all of the advisors at UNC were doing really cool research. So I think that's one really important thing when you're doing research on schools is making sure that there's multiple advisors that you could potentially see yourself working with um, because then you'll be able to, you know, kind of assess whether you would work with them really well, um, which I think is way more important than the project itself because it's kind of like a marriage, you know, you're spending a lot of time with them for four to six years. And so, if they're constantly going against you, if you're constantly butting heads, then it's not going to go well. So actually, whenever I was looking for a lab, the number one thing I was looking for was a supportive PI that would support my career goals. Um, and that would allow me the flexibility on whatever project I pick to kind of tailor it towards my career goals. Um, and I also wanted kind of a good lab culture, which comes with a good PI. So I wanted to make sure that the senior lab students that would be training me would take the time to actually train me. And then I would, you know, kind of have an environment where I would flourish. And I definitely felt like that was the scenario in the lab that I'm in now. Um, Actually, I have two PIs, which is not super common. And I definitely would not recommend it for everyone. It really has to be the perfect scenario. So I had started off joining Dr. Dayton's lab. And then, so his lab is focused on ultrasound uh, for drug delivery, but I knew that I wanted to kind of keep that formulation development side in me. So um, I sought out another PI, Dr. Rahima Benhabor, and she does a lot of formulation development work. And so during my first year, I was able to write a small grant that was worth, you know, $2,000 to kind of get some preliminary data and kind of based on me getting that grant, they, the two of them talked and, you know, they were like, Hey, I think this is a good idea for a co-mentorship opportunity. And they're both on the same floor. Um, I literally just have to walk across the hall. So it's really convenient. And they both have really different mentorship styles. So one is a little bit more hands-off and one is a little bit more hands-on kind of day-to-day. So from a management standpoint, it made sense and was, you know, manageable. Um, And I was able to, you know, kind of come up with a project that would kind of marry the two technologies. So I'm wondering, like, do you get accepted and then you find a match for you in terms of like PIs to work with or do those things kind of happen at the same time? Um, like when you get accepted, you've also kind of been matched with the PI. Yeah, it's different depending on the program. So okay. even at UNC, 
um, between the pharmaceutical sciences and between the BME department, it's different. So with the farm side program, you're required to do two rotations with two different PIs when you start, and then you make a decision after that. Whereas with the BME program at UNC, you are basically invited by a faculty member based on your application that might be interested in working with you. And then once you start, you have already picked a lab. So even within the same school, two different departments might do it differently. I thought that the rotations were great um, because you can kind of get a taste of how the, you know, advisor actually is and what your working relationship might be. And you kind of get a feel for your day to day, Um, but you are you know, adding time in a sense. So like I didn't pick a lab. I started in August of 2018 and then I joined Paul's lab in February. So, you know, that is losing several months of working in your actual thesis lab. But, you know, in the grand scheme of things, if you're in a lab for, you know, four to six years, then a few months putting in that few months to really pick the right lab to me was really crucial because now looking back, I'm really glad that I didn't join the other labs that I rotated in. And I really feel like I made the right decision. That's awesome. Yeah. I I was just going to ask you if, if you liked that process. I think I would too. How long were your rotations in like two months each? Did you say that already? I'm sorry if I missed it. Yeah, they were two months each which is such a short amount of time, especially because, so during a PhD program, and I actually didn't know this, depending on the program, you only take classes for the first one to two years. And so during those first one to two years, you are trying to juggle being a student as well as, you know, trying to learn new techniques, trying to get your handle on things in the lab and working on research. So for me, I felt like, the first two years up until passing my qualifying exam were the most difficult. And so what's life like now that you're on like the back half of that? Like what, what's the change feel like? And I guess, how's your time split? I, what, was it difficult in terms of like juggling a lot or also like time commitment? And then how is that different now? Yeah. So first it was a lot getting used to switching from having a full-time job where I didn't have to study and then kind of getting back into test taking mode. Of course, if you come straight from undergrad, then you're kind of used to all that, but I kind of had to get back into the swing of things like, oh, this is how I study (laughs) and oh no, I have to take tests again. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I definitely feel like the first year is pretty overwhelming because, you know, everyone has imposter syndrome getting into a PhD program is a big deal. So you feel like everyone has experiences that you don't have and expertise that you don't have. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I definitely felt like that first year was the most difficult just because it's such a huge adjustment, no matter what experience you're coming from, because you can't know everything about everything. And so you just kind of have to come to terms with that. 
that was something that was difficult for me because I felt like, you know, I worked in industry for a few years. Like I should know something. And I really felt like I knew nothing. <laughs> I'm sure others were thinking this of you though. Like, wow, she really knows so much. I feel like an imposter. Yeah. So like managing that plus getting on a new schedule back to test taking and you're in a lab. That's a lot. Yeah. Especially if you're in a lab where you really have zero background in what the research is. So I mentioned before, my background is in chemical engineering and the first two labs that I rotated in were very biology heavy Mm -hmm. and biology was never my strong suit. Um, Now I love it because I feel like I'm doing it every day and I have a connection to how it's actually working. Like I can actually see my science happen, Mm -hmm. but whenever I was rotating in those two labs, like I didn't know anything about biology or immunology. And so just reading scientific papers in a brand new field is really difficult to start out with. And you really just have to do a lot of reading, ask a lot of questions and Yeah, it can be an uphill battle getting up to speed, but, you know, it just takes time and anyone can do it. Yeah, that's, that's the year of resilience for sure. Yes, definitely. How is it now that you're up to speed? You're used to the, you're out of the test taking mode and you're kind of used to the lab work. How does it feel now? Does it feel more comparable to like a normal job? Yeah, it's great. And, you know, I feel like, because of the project that I have, which is a lot of animal work, um, not one person can do that. It's really um, multiple people that have to be helping out on a study. And so I still feel like I'm getting that collaborative environment, even though a PhD is very individualistic. So if I were in more of like a basic science lab, just pipetting clear liquids into other containers, then you know, just one person can be an expert and do those types of studies, but because my studies are a little bit more involved, there's a lot of moving parts. I really like being able to work with a lot of different types of people. And yeah, I definitely feel like now that I've passed the qualifying exams and I'm not taking classes and I feel very confident in my skills in the lab, um, being a senior grad student is really fun um, in my opinion (laughs) um, because you just get to you know train new people and you really have all the skills you need to just do a lot of publishing in your last couple years yeah good for you and congratulations when do you think you'll you'll wrap up then thank you you. Didn't you know that's the number one rule of questions that you don't ask a grad student? You don't student? ask, oh my God, no, I didn't. I'm only an undergrad, uh, post-undergrad student, so I don't know these things. I'm kidding. I get those questions all the time. And I feel like even within the lab, we're like, when are you defending? I don't know. When are you defending? Right, defending. I knew that once upon a time. So when are you defending? Yeah. Awesome. Um, I don't know. So that's one other thing that was difficult to come to terms with compared to other professional schools, whereas like, other graduate degrees are a set program. Like, yes, it's definitely going to be three years or yes, it's definitely going to be four years. Whereas like the time that you spend in your PhD is very variable depending on your program requirements, um, your boss's requirements, how high risk your project is, or if it's kind of an easy, straightforward project. 
Mm-hmm. And then if there's a global pandemic, you know, that also <laughs> plays into it. Yeah, this is kind of like a fresh subject for me because I'm kind of in the negotiation phase right okay. now where I feel that I have accomplished enough. So in my department, they usually require one first author paper to defend. Um but my boss requires three first author papers, but he prefers to go for more um, like shorter papers. So in some fields like biology, you might spend your whole time working towards one huge paper, but kind of another way to go about it is multiple smaller papers. And that's definitely the approach that my boss takes. Okay. So right now I have three research papers already, you know, submitted kind of under review. Yeah. Awesome. (laughs) But um, right now there's no one kind of to take over my project. So if you're interested in taking over my project, feel free to apply to our lab and then I can train you and then someone will be able to continue my project on. And so right now, I'm kind of thinking definitely sometime in the fall. Um, So hopefully like October uh, or something like that. And one other weird thing, which I learned recently is that because you can defend any time during the year, Mm -hmm. um, you can actually get your PhD and get your job without having the actual diploma because there's only three graduation times per year So there's a graduation in May, in August, and December. But say if I defend in October, then I wouldn't like technically be done until that December time point, but I could start a job in between then. Oh, well, that's good. So you don't have to like wait on that schedule or anything. Okay. So should we plug an application to your lab in the podcast description? You want to drop a link? Yeah, sure. I can drop a link. And then, um, yeah, we have a link to our website. You can probably read a little bit more about my project. I could even put my review paper in there if you wanted to, you know, learn a little bit more about my research. Anything we can link to, we'll do it. So if you're interested, check out the links in this podcast description. If, if you're okay with transitioning off the PhD, I do want to ask you what you're planning on doing after you defend and get that, that big job, what's it going to be in and and where are you, where are you imagining yourself? Yeah. So I definitely knew coming from industry that I wanted to go back into industry. So that was a little bit more clear cut for me than say, you know, someone who might be considering academia or some non-traditional role that's neither of those things. And so, you know, that's kind of one check mark is that I know that I want to go into industry. I know I want to work in biotech, biopharma. Um, right now, I'm really interested in the cancer immunotherapy field, um, either that or cell therapy or gene therapy. So kind of something in developing biologics. Um, I definitely like product development, which is kind of like in between discovery and manufacturing. And right now I'm thinking working for a larger or more established company, kind of going into it. 
um, just so I can kind of get the best training there is out there. And kind of, I also really want a good work-life balance kind of coming out of the PhD because that can get a little bit out of hand sometimes spending all your time, you know, either working in the lab or writing. So I'm definitely don't feel like I want to go for a startup opportunity. Um, and then, yeah, I hope to look for some senior scientist roles kind of starting out. And then I would love to transition over into something like project management or business development. Because when I was at Ivonic and, you know, also during my PhD, one thing that I found that I really love is working together with people from different backgrounds to kind of push a project forward. Um, and I also felt like a skill that I had that has been really beneficial during my PhD is project management. Just being really organized and planning is something that I love doing. And so I feel like my skill set and personality and being able to communicate science well would kind of translate well into some of those roles. And I definitely don't see myself working in a lab forever, uh, but I think it is kind of a necessary first step into really understanding what a company is all about, really understanding their technology. Because I felt like when I was at Evonic, the best project managers or salespeople or people in business had worked yeah. in the technology space and they really understood what it was that kind of the company was selling or trying to manage. You can tell you've like really done that searching and just know it. I mean, that was such a specific answer. You know what I mean? Like when you're looking at like the openings out there, you're going to know exactly when it's, it's the one for you. Um, you just got all your parameters set. So best of luck. And I'd love for you to be my boss one day. I'll never be in pharma, but like, I would love to be on one of your project teams. You're like so candid and so nice and so smart. Like I can imagine you, you running that ish. So I know we talked a little bit about this before we started recording and I want to catch it again. So um, any final tips you can provide to a bio or chem or biomedical engineering grad or undergrad, I should say, um, on the decision to pursue a PhD, when to decide this, maybe how to like get a flavor of it before they graduate from their undergraduate degree. What do you think? Yeah, that's a great question because... I felt like when I was an undergrad, academia or grad school seemed kind of like this really far away thing that I could never attain. And I was like, oh, it was only really smart people that would, you know, get their PhD. And that is definitely not true. <laughs> uh, I really feel like anyone can do it. Um, but I feel like if you're trying to make the decision on whether you should or shouldn't, definitely have that kind of career goal in mind. Like, do I definitely need a PhD to get the end job that I want? Mm -hmm. um, if you're going into it just to have people call you doctor, first of all, they won't. Um, and, <laughs> and second of all, um, it'll just be, you know, several long, hard years. Um, and then you'll probably get a job where you didn't need it in the first place, which is totally fine. Like, you know, people go down that path. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as trying to get a little bit more exposure to it in undergrad, I feel like the onus is a little bit on the departments to do a better job of advertising the labs and the research that they do. Mm -hmm. That is one thing that I feel like I didn't get a lot of experience with 
an undergrad, um, it still, you know, like I said, felt very mysterious, but um, usually the TAs of your classes are grad students, you know, and they're people just like you, maybe a couple of years older, maybe not. Um, but you know, they're real people and they're nice. So if you're interested in grad school, they're probably a grad student. So you can reach out to them and, you know, ask them what their experience is. And, you know, most people I think are really happy to share their experiences. So, yeah. So as far as if you're coming from undergrad and then if you're coming from industry, you know, also make sure that the job you want definitely needs a PhD It also is a bit of a cost because if you are going from industry where you might be making pretty good salary, you're going to be downgrading a little bit into the research stipend, um, which for a lot of cities is below the poverty line. I think that's a huge problem because you're generating tons of revenue for universities, but it is something that you definitely have to keep in mind. That was a little bit of a shock for me going into academia was having to, you know, really budget and penny pinch a little bit. Um, thankfully, I got married when I was in grad school. Um, and so my husband was able to get a job in the same city as me finally. And so I was able to have kind of that extra support, but, you know, not all grad students have that. And so it can be a difficult transition. It's definitely an investment for the future. Um, mm-hmm. If you want to switch fields, it wasn't switching too much, but if there's definitely like a job that you want to get that you need a PhD for, then, you know, definitely go for it. Yeah. All good tips and and good things to consider. I really appreciate you coming on here. I know we connected through like a mutual connection a couple of months back and I'm glad we were able to finally do this. So thank you so much for, for joining and, and sharing your experience on that transition from industry to PhD and then back. I think it's really unique and a lot of people brush up on that question a couple of years into their first job. So um, thank you. Yeah, of course. I, in hindsight, am really glad that I made that decision. And so if you find yourself kind of wondering, you know, I might regret if I never tried to go back and get my PhD, then you have multiple links in the podcast <laughs> description. And I'm happy to talk to anyone about my experience or, you know, making that decision. What a generous offer for real. (laughs) So check out all those links. All right. Thanks, Jordan. Thank you. The BME Grad Podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For more information on the BME Grad Podcast, visit bme.unc.edu. Right now, you can find that information under the News and Events tab. If you can, please subscribe or follow and leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.